Ingo, please go ahead. Yeah. Hello, Tom. Uh, I will read my question. Um, it's about the current uh, current uh, situation we have here, and I will read it. Do you have any tips for the current time for this uh, lockdown period? Um, you know, you know, I'm I'm an extrovert, and I feel comfortable around my fellow humans or in a full metro. And I have to say, I'm not not really satisfied with this uh, current life situation and this uh, lockdown lifestyle we have here in Germany. And it starts to affect my mood, I have to say. Um, I do also some volunteer work here in Germany. I communicate with um with my with young people uh, i listen to their problems and try to give them energy and pass uh, pass on some knowledge um but i have to say this whole situation uh, affects me and it may sound a little bit uh, dramatic uh, but but i need to intentionally care about my mental health at this time and yeah i would like to ask you if you can share some thoughts with me sure yeah this uh, this uh, covid experience where people have to not associate with the people they're used to associating in order to not to get the virus or to give the virus either one is very difficult for extroverts. It's actually wonderful for introverts. <laughs> the introverts are think are sitting around thinking, oh, I hope this thing doesn't go away because otherwise I'm going to be pushed back out there in the crowd again and have to have to interact uh, with all those things that make me uncomfortable. It's so much nicer just you know being here with my friends or my family and staying home and I like that a lot so that Introverts find it a very uh, easy thing to do. It's a positive thing. It's uh, you know they they can if they if they list all the bad sides and the good sides, their good side list is a lot longer than their bad side list. But with extroverts, it's just the opposite. An extrovert feels trapped. I'm trapped in my house. I'm trapped. It's like they're in jail, you know. And it's it's. Um, very hard for them because they miss that interaction. So the one thing I would tell you that maybe you can do that will help is that you can still interact with people without being by them physically. Use Zoom or other technologies that lets you talk to people and exchange with people. Talk to those young people over Zoom. If you can, if you can somehow arrange those meetings, you'll find out And it'll be very surprising, perhaps, uh, to many extroverts, but you'll find out that that connection you can make on Zoom because you're watching them. You have all the facial clues and body language details and all the communications that it is very much like being there. There's not a lot that's lost. You know, I initially thought before I did my first uh, immersive that I did digitally, 
oh, there's going to be a lot lost here because we're not going to have that face-to-face contact. We're not going to build up that bubble. We're not going to have all that going on. Everybody's going to be in their own little space in their home, you know what, on their computer, uh, dealing with home things, and it's just not going to work as well. And it turned out that wasn't the case. It turned out it worked just as well, if not better, for a lot of people to be in that situation. So even though it may seem like it's a more sterile environment to talk digitally over like a Zoom or a Skype, or there's a whole bunch of other ones that are in that market as well, it may seem a little sterile, but it isn't nearly as sterile as it seems like. It turns out that it really, you do have the same emotional connections. You do have the same intuitive connections as you do physically. This is a virtual reality. We're all dealing with sharing information, getting information, interpreting it, sending information back out. And it turns out that the, the actual physical face-to-face just isn't that big a part of it at all. It's mostly a consciousness-to-consciousness thing. And as long as you get enough clues like facial expressions and postures and, you know, you get enough of that uh, nonverbal communications along with it, then you basically have everything. So try to, you know, my, my, uh, my wife and I both being, you know, both having the grandchildren spread all over the place. We miss the grandkids. So we miss the kids too. I have eight grandchildren, four children and eight grandchildren. And every month or so, we all meet up on Zoom and we catch up with what's going on. We tell jokes. We play games. We do things that the kids would find fun. So it's not just an adult space. And uh, it is. It's a lot of fun. It kind of keeps you together and keeps you uh, involved in what other people are doing and how they're feeling and what's going on in their life. And you have fun with the kids. And no, it's not exactly the same as being there, but it has its advantages, too. It's a much shorter trip. doesn't cost nearly so much in gas or airplane fare. You know, it's quicker, and you can schedule it uh, multiple times. And anyhow, so that'd be one thing. Try to, try to move your social life onto Zoom rather than just not having a social life. That's hard. See if you can't get all your friends to, you know, to log on. Send them all an invite with a log on and just chat. Be the organizer, because if nobody organizes it, it doesn't happen. It just sits there. So you got to be the organizer to organize it and have some idea. If there's little kids involved, you're going to have to have some sort of games or entertaining things that they can do. If if they're all adults, then you don't have to. But you kind of, if you're the organizer, then you're also the moderator, you know, or if you're not the organizer, then somebody else will be the moderator, which will kind of set the tone and keep conversations going. You know, moderators kind of helps when you have that, uh, that that situation. So that'd be one thing. I say go make an effort to organize Zoom connections, and you'll find that they are more satisfying than you think. The other thing is... Take the time. I know this is hard. This is a hard sell to a, to an extrovert, but take the time to be with yourself. This is a good opportunity for things like meditation, uh, you know, self reflection, uh, learning intuitive skills, 
because you have more time alone than you have otherwise. You're not so you're not the busy social bee going to this event, going to that event. You know, you have more time. So take that time and try to use it wisely because you won't always have it. This isn't going to last forever. And when this is over, you don't want to be looking back and saying, oh, man, I wish I had taken that time to do more meditation or to, uh, you know, practice my remote viewing or something, because now I can't. You know, so take the time and use it for those things that you do alone. Um, write some. Begin to uh, begin to put ideas and thoughts down that you have. You know, start that book that's in there someplace uh, that you might write about the things that you particularly know about or about the successes you have in therapy. Try to organize the thoughts, put them in some kind of a of a form. Uh, just your your own accumulated wisdom and experience. Put it down, because what you'll find is that you'll learn so much when you try to write it down, because when you write it down, you'll find hard. It's hard to write down, hard to find the right words. And as you put it to paper and go over it and say it more eloquently, you'll learn a whole lot because writing it down forces coherency. Whereas you have all kinds of thoughts going on in your mind and the thoughts are, the thoughts are fuzzy, but we're used to dealing with fuzzy, fuzzy thoughts and we don't even notice that they're fuzzy. But when we start, when we have to write it down, suddenly that fuzz is obvious because you can't write fuzzy sentences. When you look at a fuzzy sentence, it just looks wrong. You know, it isn't right. So writing things down forces coherency to your thinking. And you'll learn a whole lot when you do that. So, you know, the accumulated wisdom and experience of Ingo Thiel, that, uh, that could be worth writing down. It doesn't have to be long. You know, if it's just two or three pages, four pages, and expand on it. So these are things you can do by yourself, and they're things that will improve you. You'll be, you'll be wiser because of it, and they do take time. So fill your time with valuable things. Don't just sit around feeling negative because life isn't going on the way you want it to or the way it used to. Take that as an opportunity to do those things that, that are more easily done by yourself and get your social life going again by organizing your connections. The people that you used to hang out with that now you don't, get them, get them together. Hang out with them. And I think you'll find it goes a long way to, to uh, satisfying that need that you have as an extrovert to be social and to connect to people. That digital connection really is a good, you know, 90, 95% of the face-to-face connection. It, it works pretty well. So get yourself out of the, out of the gloomy space because it's, life isn't being the way you want it to be. That's your ego being disappointed with life isn't the way you want it to be. And of course it's unfair. And of course it's, you know, it's unnecessary. And you go through all that negativity stuff and then you start complaining and then the complaining makes you more negative. And pretty soon you work yourself into a really negative whip and life just sucks and you can't wait for things to change and so on. That's not a good space to be in. 
So you don't want to you don't want to go down that route. You'll end up wasting all of the all of the very valuable time you have now to do things that you never had time to do before. And there are a lot of individual things that are quite meaningful. You know, there's all kinds of things you could learn that you don't have time. Books you can read that you don't have time. You know, teach yourself to cook. Teach yourself to play the piano. That takes time alone, you know, to sit down and learn those things. Well, if you've got time now because you're not going out and socializing, you know, no more parties for Ingo for a while, then you might as well take that time and, and make it useful. You know, do your do things that that capitalize on it. See it as an opportunity rather than as an imposition. So just change your perspective there and uh I think you'll you'll lighten up, smile. Smile a little more. Be happier. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think your answer will be also helpful for a lot of other people. All right. Thanks, Ingo. Uh, Jan, please go ahead with your questions. Yeah, I would like to ask, when I expect positive positiveness from other people generally like i expect the love that is in everybody then uh, is there some um influence that i that i give on other on other people like do i influence other people when when i expect positiveness in others like generally i i expect you to do general caring and you do um, you do the dishes because you care, you make more because you love to, and like all the additional stuff, like because I think um, that would be nice if I do that and that would make uh, life for others easier. And if I expect that from others generally, um, or that, that they are generally kind and they mean it. So, um, because in my experience in the past, um, I had a friend who said, man, all these mean people on the, in this world. And I never had any problems with people generally because everyone was just nice. <laughs> and I just wanted to know, um, if expecting positive, um, are they changing? Is this changing their choices or their, their, um, yeah, their, yeah, I think I got yeah. what you mean. Well, it, there's a couple of things working here. One is that it's not just your expectation, but it's also your own positiveness. When you see that, when you feel that you live in a positive world, you expect other people to be positive and you're positive. Well, all that helps to create that world. Okay. So it's not just your expectation that helps those people be positive or that changes them in that way. But it's also you just being positive. When people are positive, it's easier to be positive too. When people are complaining and grouchy and, oh, woe is me, you know, well, you can probably think of some things to commiserate with them. And, oh, yeah, that does suck, doesn't it? And, you know, and then both of you now are down instead of just the one. So when you're negative, you, you pull people down to be more negative. When you're positive, you, you help people become more positive. 
So part of it is your expectation of their behavior. And part of it is the fact that you're being positive. You're approaching them from a positive viewpoint, not from a complaining or a negative space. They don't feel you don't threaten. You don't come on as a threatening person about to say something that's going to upset them or annoy them or criticize them. You see, they don't expect that from you. They expect something positive. Therefore, they tend to be positive back. So sure, being positive creates more positiveness in the world. It does indeed. You do affect other people and you do help them change in that direction. Now, if they are just really committed to being grumpy, then you might change them just for a few minutes while they're talking to you, and they may go right back to being grumpy again. But that's all right. You've given them a little positive you know, few minutes in their life, and maybe that space will grow and become bigger and bigger. So, yes. Now, if you are a person who is in charge, say, of others, maybe you're a school teacher, so you're kind of in charge of your students that are in your room, or maybe you're the boss in a some other situation. If you're kind of the, the leader, if you will, and you have positive expectations, then you will help all of the people that you're leading be more positive because you're the leader and you show them positiveness, they'll be positive too. Whereas you're, if your expectations are negative, you will produce just the opposite result. And they did any number of studies oh, many years ago with teachers' attitudes in class. And in those classes, you know, they'd get a bunch of kids, mix them all up, randomly separate them by, you know, their capabilities and that kind of stuff so that teacher A and teacher B both got basically the same kind of group of kids. And they tell one teacher, your kids are all the smart kids. You got all the smart kids. They tell the other teacher, your kids are all the ones having trouble. They're not doing very well. Although these kids started exactly equal, making exactly equal scores on, you know, things like IQ tests and competency tests and so on. After spending a year with a teacher who thought that they were troubled or a year with the teacher that thought they were gifted, the ones that were gifted went up and the ones that were thought were troubled went down. So the only difference was the teacher's attitude toward those kids. That was the only difference. They started out equal, but they didn't end up equal at the end of the year because the ones that had to put up with a, teacher who thought that they weren't all that smart didn't learn nearly as much. So, yes, you do affect people, particularly if you're in a leadership role. If you're in a leadership role, what you say has carries more weight with people. Now, if you're not in a leadership role, it's just peer-to-peer, just people you meet. Well, you still influence them, but I think there you influence them more by the way you are than you really do by your expectation of them. On the other hand, you can't really separate those two because the way you are is positive, and because you're positive, that's why you have a positive expectation of them. Those two things are really come out of the same thing. Being positive gives you a positive expectation. Do you really have a positive expectation if you are just positive? Because if, if I'm positive, I don't really expect them to be positive. Like. They can be whatever they want. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are still grumpy or maybe are just sad if, if one is positive or quite the opposite if I'm sad mm -hmm. and they are positive. I, I mean, I, I don't really think I'm, I'm expecting them to. Oh, the, oh yeah, yeah I, I can see it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of sad if I don't see them positive, but, but I can let, it, let it, that go. 
But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I still expect yeah, something. Like if I'm looking you're positive, for it. you just kind of have that positive feeling. So you just interact with people positively, and and yeah, if they feel sad, you could commiserate with them, or you could uh, try to cheer them up, or you whatever. But yeah, you still have an you know your expectation to life in general is that life is good. People are fine. Life is good. People have their own problems and their own issues, but in general, you know, they're they're good. So you're careful not to push their buttons and, and uh, get them upset and those kinds of stuff, and that's part of being positive. So, yeah, if you're positive, everything around you is better. When you're negative, everything around you is worse. This is one of the ways that you get to create your reality. If you are negative, you're going to create a sad reality. You're going to create a reality that's full of anxiety. And if you're happy and positive, you're going to create a a reality that's full of good cheer. So it's, you know, being positive is a very important thing. Even in the midst, like when we're talking to Savetta, even in the midst of horrible stuff, you can still be positive. You can still care. You can still go out and carry a slogan and, and, you know, demonstrate and get involved. But you do it positively, not because you're angry and upset. So as long as you stay positive, your life tends to be good, even in hard times. You know, I had a really good friend of mine who is deceased now, but he was an automobile mechanic. He did his mechanics works, not in an auto shop, but in his backyard. He was very, very good. He was very, very poor. But he and his family, you know, lived in a Lived in a house. The whole house probably didn't have as much area in it as my kitchen, you know. But they were happy. They were positive people. They they always had a, a smile. They always had something nice to say, you know to say. And if you'd come over, I'd come over and I'd bring my kids. And they were little. They were like six or seven years old. Uh, the, the lady of the house would always go in and come out with some bananas for them to to share or something, you know, whatever they had. It wasn't much, but they shared whatever they had. And these were happy, high-quality people, dirt poor, eking out a living, but doing it on their own terms, in their own way, at their own, you know, at their own pace. And they were happy people, very high-quality people. So just because, you know, other people living in their situation would have been full of negativity. I don't have this. I don't have that. I need. I want. But, uh they uh, didn't have any of those problems. They were happy just being who they were. So even dire situations, you can be happy in them. You can be positive in them if you don't have that ego and those beliefs that make you unhappy. You know, If you don't have that fear that makes you unhappy, you can be unhappy. So even if you're in a war zone, well, you need to keep your head down. <laughs> you need to stay out of trouble. You need not to go outside. At night, you know, you need to abide by the curfew. You need to do all those things because that just makes good sense. But you can also be a, you know, a voice for change, a voice for growth. You just need to not do it from anger. You do change people. You do help people. You do give them that safe space. See, when they're around you, they don't have to worry about somebody uh, criticizing them. 
because you're a positive guy. You're not going to criticize him. Even if you saw their faults, you're not going to bring up their faults and criticize them about it because you're positive. So when they're around you, they can be themselves more. They, you give them the, the chance to try things, try new things. That's good. Keep it positive, Jan. That's, that is just the right way to be. And you'll find that you'll live in a positive world. If you keep it negative, you'll find you live in this terrible, awful, negative world. It's, um, yeah, I just had um, several occasions where I was living in an open heart field and um, loving everybody, but was kind of introverted and I had still some troubles and issues and not seeing maybe others' issues uh, so much because I was in that meditative progress. And they hurt me quite a lot, like um, sequentially, and I couldn't really handle it. And um, like that hurt, like feelings, do they store in the body or um, because I mean, it's just information, right? So um, if the fear comes up, like if a concept or information comes in and I interpret it as something um, that is bad, um, I get the feeling that is somehow connected to my body or is it just connected to my body if I interpret it that way and I can just let it go? It's mainly connected to your body because you interpret it that way, but your body does modify itself to express your consciousness. So if you are constantly, let's say, angry or stressed, then you will start to find that your body expresses that. And now you'll have these lumps at the back of your neck that are sore all the time. You know, it's really a massage feels really good or you'll have back pain or you'll have all sorts of pains. You'll get indigestion at night. You have all these dysfunctions. And most of that dysfunction is your body expressing the negativity of your consciousness. So, yes, your body does express these things. But the more positive you get, then that kind of stuff goes away. Thank you. Nicholas has a question. He may be on audio only. So Nicholas asks, when you explain fear, it sounds a lot like belief. Could we say that beliefs are what our mind creates to justify our fears? A great deal of the time that it's exactly right. Um, a lot of times we, we create beliefs to justify our fears. They're all related. Fear is the fundamental thing. Ego and belief are things that we create to help us deal with The fear. Now, maybe by dealing with it, that means not dealing with it. It may mean uh, ignoring it or uh, denying it, but it's that's denying it may be how we deal with it. But in any case, that's where the ego comes from, and that's where the most of the beliefs come from. So they're all interrelated to each other. But the fear is the core thing. That's the thing that's fundamental, and it creates the ego and or the ego is created in order to help make the fear seem less fearful and the beliefs are created for the same reason to justify the way we act and behave so yes fear is the core 
but belief is definitely a, not an independent thing. It's a, it's a, a creation of ours because we have fear. So if you get rid of the fear, a lot of your beliefs and a lot of your ego just disappears without you having to do anything about it. It just goes away. Uh, Sveta had a question about animals. Um, it was thought that you may have mentioned that billions of animals um, held, in held in captivity in inhumane conditions could be a source of the pandemic. And she goes on to state that Tuesday the World Health Organization released information based on an intense investigation that it did, in fact, come from the farms that hold billions of animals, wild animals in addition to domesticated that are in captivity. Until it's fixed, we might see the virus mutating all at once, um, ignoring all the vaccination attempts and such. Uh, and also, how do you see Jung's statement that it's everybody's obligation to endure the tension until the call for morality beyond good and evil is heard? Okay. Well, that's an interesting statement. I'd never heard that. I'm not a, I'm not a student of... Uh... Carl Jung, but uh, I recognize him, a very wise man who did understand reality very, very deeply. I've read enough about that. I haven't studied him, uh, but um, he does have a lot of wisdom. I think that that statement by Jung is very much what we've just been talking about here. You know, he said, you know, you have to, in, you have to endure. Well, life isn't the way you want it. Life is something else. It's full of people who are not very grown up and full of situations that are full of fear. And you have to endure all that, but you have to endure it positively. And if you do endure it positively, you will help change it. And we have to endure it with positively until it does change. There's really no other choice. Hiding from it, becoming a hermit or you know shutting it all out is not a good solution. It may be a solution for you personally, privately, but it doesn't help the rest of the world much. It doesn't really put you in the position of being part of the solution. To be part of the solution, you have to stay engaged and connected, and you have to endure what what is there. But, you know, maybe endure, it's not the right word that I would use. Uh, it's not so much endure almost sounds negative, like you're gritting your teeth and burying it, but you don't like it. You know, it's not that kind of endurance. You just have to accept it, that it is that way, and accept it uh, um, without letting it drag you down and making you part of that same sad problem. So that, in that sense, I would agree that endure is, is, uh, is acceptable, but it's not endure from a negative viewpoint of burying it, of forcing your way through it. It's accepting it. Now, um, about the part about the animals and viruses and so on, well, sure, viruses can go back and forth between people and animals. Um, that happens all the time. Now, it's not, you know, it's, it's not uh, as common, obviously, as going from people to people or from animals to animals. That, that is a much larger thing. But there are some viruses who can populate both. Once a long, long time ago, I got an eye infection from a golden retriever. 
happened to be one of my own pets, golden retriever, and it had eyes and the eyes were runny and gooey and I got some stuff to put in the eyes and I wasn't careful enough about washing my hands and pretty soon my eyes were runny and gooey and I had the same thing. So I know that you can get things, you know, from animals that they, that, uh, I guess an eyeball is an eyeball. The kind of thing that lives on an eyeball is, uh, wasn't that picky, whether it was a dog's eyeball or a human eyeball. And the, uh, the coronavirus that we have seems to have some connection with bats. Now, I don't know exactly what that connection is, but I've read multiple things, different places that uh, people were studying bats. People were uh, doing, you know, research in, and uh, you know, using bats as as uh, research animals and bats at markets and lots of things like that. Some of that's probably true. Some of that's probably not. But the bat angle seems to keep turning up. So I think there may be a connection there between what we have. And yes, uh, partly the animals that we keep tend to have more infections than the animals that live in the wild because we tend to keep animals in too crowded and we don't feed them the kind of things they would naturally get in the wild. So their systems aren't so used to it. So, you know, our, our remedy for the cattle, you know, that make the, the beef that we eat and the leather that we use is we pump them full of antibiotics. We do the same things with the chickens. We pump them full of antibiotics mm-hmm. because we keep them penned up in tiny spaces and with food that, isn't really suitable. And Tom, course- I, I think the the angle that Sveta was going for was could the suffering they endure um, could that produce a disease such as this COVID? I believe well, that was that, her. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that the suffering would produce it, but the suffering's a part of it. You know, I, I was just. I was just saying that, you know, when the animals are ill like that, they're also a lot of anxiety. The animal has a lot of stress. It's just where I was I was going. When the animals are, are stressed, then they're just like people. You know, their biochemistry changes to express that stress. They start, uh, uh, their physical systems adjust to represent their consciousness systems just like ours do. And yes, they may have, you know, produce uh, things that then we get in their meat. They may produce pathogens that otherwise they wouldn't have. You know, even it's true with people. When people are very stressed, they're open to getting all kinds of illnesses um, that they wouldn't get otherwise. Being stressed lowers immune systems. So sure, the conditions that animals live in probably are a very big contributor to the kinds of pathogens they get and develop and pass along and that kind of thing. Now, whether they actually cause them or whether they just make a, a, a better home for viruses and bacteria and that sort of thing, that would have to be a matter of, of uh, research. But certainly um, it all goes together. You know, how we treat the earth, how we treat animals, how we treat each other, it's all intertwined if you solve any of it you're going to solve the rest of it too you know it's all going to solve together we're going to become better stewards of the planet 
better stewards of the other creatures that live here and better interacting with our own kind as we grow up. And as long as we're not grown up, we're going to create problems everywhere. We're going to create problems in the environment, problems within other animals, and problems for ourselves. So it's, you know, these problems are all connected and intertwined. It's not like they're separate problems that could be solved separately. They all have to be solved together. And the solution at the root is growing up, becoming, you know, having a higher quality of consciousness, becoming caring. That's the solution that will solve all the problems all at once. So would you say, Tom, that it is important, um, say people who are against killing animals, that's not the solution, um, but letting them, but having a more humanitarian outlook for them, letting them free. Um, there's a misunderstanding that it feels that the animal's virus is not the problem. Um, it's the way we treat them. In a large, you know, in a large part, that's true. But there's different parts to a problem. You know, you have a problem, and you can dissect that problem into a dozen different parts, and you can work all the parts together, or you can work one part as a part to another part. Yeah, you know, just not uh, not killing animals is 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 a you know is one part. It's a moral part. You know, you shouldn't kill other conscious entities. They have free will, and they have things they're doing as well. Killing them is not a good idea. But on the other hand, that just has to go with a lot of other things. You know, if you are not going to kill them, you also need to not raise them as far as, you know, millions of them or we'll be overrun with them, uh, which has to do with the environment, which has to do with, you know, waste disposal, which has to do with, you know, food. It just all of these things are connected. And yes, they all go together. And that's why I kind of started this off in a very general way, is that this web of dysfunction is throughout all of the things we do and everything we touch and everything we're involved in, which is our environment, which is other critters, which is each other, which is, you know, everything. It affects all of us. It affects our biology. It affects our bodies. It affects how we develop, it affects how we raise our children. Everything mirrors the quality of our consciousness. So yes, uh, just you know, not eating animals is good, but that's not the only thing. Not killing them and eating them, okay, that's a good thing to do. But you know, in the situation like like the farm, you know, if you live in the woods and that's how you survive is by eating animals, well, that's different. All right, eat the animals. You you can do that. If that big animal finds you, it'll eat you. You know, that's just the way it works when you live in the woods. So there's not a problem there, but it's not the same as slaughtering, you know, billions of animals to serve people's what what they'd rather do rather than what they need to do. People can get by without that. They don't need it. They just want it. So then it becomes a, a moral problem. But there's a lot of other problems go with it, you know, that you can't just solve one piece of one problem and expect that that's going to last. you got to solve the whole problem. All right, Tom. Um, thank you for your question, Sveta. Um, T.D. has, we're cycling back around, and T.D. has another question she would like to ask about 
uh, sensitivity. If you'd like to go ahead with that question, Titi. Yeah, I'd love to. <clears throat> yeah, um, hypersensitivity. Um, since I have some wonderful people around me having this personality trait, I, I have some questions about it to learn more. But first, I'd like to put hypersensitivity on the map so people listening will get a context. So this is sort of a summary of what I've learned so far. Uh, it may not be 100% correct, but yeah, let's just uh, put it on the map. So hypersensitivity is an innate personality trait found in 15 to 20% of the population. So it's, it's pretty common. Um, the scientific term for high sensitivity is sensory processing sensitivity. And it was the American researcher and psychotherapist Elaine Aaron who coined the, th the term in the 19th, 90s. Uh, and according to Aaron, highly sensitive persons are born with a nervous system that is more sensitive than the average and a brain that works a little differently than the average. Highly sensitive people are extra receptive to their emotional and physical environment. They notice much more than others and process everything on a deeper level. Therefore, they need more time and energy than others to digest all the impressions. And here's another major difference. Highly sensitive people think and evaluate any risks before taking any action, while the majority of people acts first and then evaluates. So the fact that highly sensitive people pay attention to so many details and have difficulty filtering all the input makes them easily overstimulated. This sometimes leads to them becoming overwhelmed, feeling rushed, becoming stressed, especially when faced with messy situations or people or high entropy. But thanks to their ability to absorb a lot of information, highly sensitive people are also more empathetic compassionate, caring, connect on a deep level with animals. They are intuitive, creative, talented and profound with a rich inner life. Highly sensitive people like to think globally. They can often realize the consequences of a certain action before other people do. So that was, that was a long summary. But I just wanted to, to sort of put it on the map so so that we we we're on the same page um and tom we have talked about this before it was maybe two or three years ago and uh, i was thinking that it would be good to explore it a little bit further and um, by then we talked about the risk of going down the slippery slope into negativity and isolation which happens if you take into too much negativity from the outside world um, and analyze too much when you have this personality. So 
I have a few questions around this. Um, and it's the first one is, does hypersensitivity come with the avatar, uh, as Aaron claims, or does it come with consciousness? And I also wonder if you have any practical advice on how to make your personality flourish and grow up without getting stuck in the process of details when, when you have hypersensitivity. And uh, also what there is to be aware of to not get into um, too much negativity. And I also wonder how you as a parent or a friend can support someone who has this personality trait. Okay, well, that was four questions, so let's just start. Yeah, that was four. Mm-hmm. Let's just start uh, one at a time and yeah. uh, say, does it attach to consciousness or to the body? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little hard to tell. You know, I would say both, but which one, you know, which is the chicken and which is the egg? You know, which came first? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. The problem with the body or the problem, you know, uh, with the consciousness? Probably the problem with the consciousness, I would think, probably comes first. It's a consciousness issue. And I think then the body adapts to that consciousness and begins to modify itself to, you know, to express that particular consciousness. And it sounds to me like this highly sensitive uh, moniker uh, is really just more aware. That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like these people are just more aware. Okay, they, uh, they, they see and hear and feel and smell more things. You know, they're more connected. Well, that would be a consciousness thing, that they're just more aware of things. Uh, probably not because their body is actually more sensitive, that they actually hear more things and see more things and, and smell more things and feel more things because their nerve nervous system is more sensitive. That's probably not the case. They probably starts with consciousness. They are just more aware. And they're more aware of the same kind of sensory data that everybody gets. They're just more aware of it. We get all kinds of sensory data that we're just not aware of, you see. So it's not that you have to have a super sensitive sense of sight or hearing or taste or touch. It's not that your nervous system has to be super aware, but that you, as a more aware consciousness, are aware of more of the sensory input that your normal senses get, that other people also get, but they're not aware of it. They don't process it. It's just kind of in the un, unlooked at background. They don't pick out the details. They don't pick out the connections. They don't, you know, do that. So I'd say it's a more likely a consciousness thing. And that being more aware would normally just seem like a good thing, right? Being more aware. Well, what's wrong with being more aware? Well, it, it creates problems, when, whenever you are different than most of the people in your environment, it creates a problem. 
and it doesn't really matter so much how you're different, it creates a problem. So let's just take uh, something different than awareness. Just take uh, like intelligence. Okay, if the average intelligence is is you know what X, and you are X minus ten, then you're going to run into problems. If you're X plus ten, you're also going to run into problems because you're not the same as everybody else. We herd animals. We social animals are. Uh, very much aware of people who are different, and they frighten us and make us feel uneasy. So if you're a little brighter than the average, you're going to run into some problems. If you're a whole lot brighter than the average, you're going to run into a lot more problems. If you're just a little slower than average, you're going to run into problems. And if you're really a whole lot slower, you're going to run into a whole lot more problems. You see, so not being average is a problem, whether it's because you're better than average or because you're not quite up to average. All right, so I think that's where the problem is. I think it's mainly it's a it's a more aware than others, but they live in a society that has little room for differences, little tolerance for people being different than they are because they don't understand that difference. It's not the way they see the world. It's not the way they see the world. Then in their mind, there's something wrong with you because you don't see the way you don't see the world the way I do. By definition, the I, the majority is always the definition of what is right and what is best and what is true, you see. So if you're different than the majority, then by definition, there's something wrong with you. Now, that may be a good, a good something wrong with you because maybe you are, uh, you know, maybe you have a photographic memory and you can remember, remember anything you've seen. You know, you're one of these people that can take the, you know, a, a New York phone directory and in three minutes memorize all the names and numbers in it. You know, about as fast as you can turn the pages, all you have to do is look at the look at the page, and you've memorized everything. There are people like that. Okay, well, those people have an advantage, but no doubt those people have problems too because they don't forget things. They have information, and when somebody says, "Well, what was that?" and they pop right up with it, they've got it because they remember it. Well, it makes that person feel like they're not so smart or not as smart. So that person doesn't feel good because that other person is better at this than they. So then they don't quite like that person so much because it makes them, he makes them feel bad, you see, or she makes them feel bad. So they have to deal with those problems. So gifts are problems as well as, as well as uh, things that are like reverse gifts, things that you're not quite as good at as other people. So I think that's that's really the issue. It's not it's not their body, but of course, if you're in medical science, then everything has to be your body because you're a materialist, and it's, the body is the only thing it could possibly be. Um, so having a more awareness than others, I'd say, is one of those very positive things. But you have to have you have to be able to deal with the negative effects of it. You have to not 
I don't know. You, you have to not be overwhelmed by the negativity that you see. You see, let's say you get a person and they have an IQ of 160. And what they do with it is make themselves miserable. They walk around thinking, geez, everybody's just so dull. Everybody's so stupid. I can't stand this place. Everywhere I go, there's stupid people everywhere. What a stinky place to have to live. I got to explain everything that everywhere I go. Nobody seems to understand anything I say. So they make themselves miserable. They're unhappy. They're negative. They complain. You see, so they take that gift and rather than make a real gift out of it, they turn it into a problem. Well, people who are very sensitive do a similar kind of thing. They look at the negativity in the world and they see that as a problem. Look at all that negativity. Look at all this awfulness. And that starts to get them down. And then they start to withdraw. And then they, you know, they want to go crawl in a hole, leave it all behind. And they get teased and they get picked on and they get poked because they're different. So particularly young people are very vulnerable to having an advantage of being more aware than other people. Well, they need some guidance and they need some help in understanding that they actually had to have a gift, but they have to have the right perspective in order to use that gift. So that guy with the 160 IQ, he has to have the right perspective in order to make that a gift and not a curse. He can only see the curse side. And when you only see the curse side, then, you know, the gift is lost. He ought to be figuring out better ways to be more useful and to be more helpful and to be, you know, a better, a bigger, better part of the solution with all that brain power rather than complaining about everybody else not being like him. You see, so that's, that would be the challenge for one of these highly sensitive people. And they're not really so highly sensitive as they are highly uh, aware is they they need to take that gift, see it as a gift, and not let the negative in their environment pull them down. Make them see life negatively. Don't turn that difference into a, a negative thing. Maintain it as a as a gift thing. So that requires perspective. They can't get wadded up in their emotional self without the perspective of the bigger picture. Once they get the bigger picture, then the ship will right itself. Everything will be all right. But when you're 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 years old, the bigger picture is really hard to find because you're just not old enough. You don't have enough experience yet to really grasp a bigger picture. So that's why it affects these young people so much is because they're not yet mature enough to find that bigger picture, but they still have this this extra awareness that now they find troublesome because it makes them different and they don't fit in. You see, so that's just going to be a parent's uh, challenge to see if they can't get them through that young phase into a more of an adult phase where they do have the bigger perspective and they can actually take that gift and use it for something very, very positive and not feel superior because they have it, but 
also disassociate themselves from the negativity. And again, the same, the same thing, be positive, you know, it's be positive, be positive, always be positive, particularly about yourself. You know, you have to be positive. If you start thinking I'm defective, I'm not like everybody else. Everybody else is normal and they're right. And uh, something's the matter with me and I'm defective. Oh no. What else is wrong with me? And I'm sure if you look hard, you'll find all kinds of things that are wrong with yourself and you'll get off into some kind of a negative attitude towards yourself. And that's a trap. So that's not a, you know, that's not, that's not helpful. So let's go on to number two. I think I overdid number one. Let's go on. And, did I answer any of the rest of them or let's go on to the next one? I think you answered number two because you talked about also how, how can you make your personality flourish and grow up without getting stuck in the pro, in processing the details. Yeah. That was number two. But we were sort of into that. Yeah, just you have to see the bigger picture. You have to mm, see it for yeah. what it is. You know, but it's a it's a gift of extra awareness and you need to develop that and let everybody else be just the way they are. You don't have to be negative about other people. Oh, these other people, they just don't seem to have much awareness, you know. I mean, that's negative too. You don't have to put anybody down. You just have to accept what you are, who you are, the gifts that you have and make the most of them. And still live with other people, still interact with other people. We'll be connected, but not be what? Not be at their mercy because you feel like you're different or there's something wrong with you. Yeah. All right, let's go into number three. Uh, um, yeah, and what is there to be aware of to not slip into uh, processing negativity? I think you answered that too. Yeah, that one too. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah, be pulled down. Exactly. Don't be pulled down yeah. by the difference that you have. Look at that difference in a positive light, not a negative light. Yeah. And the last question was uh, how you as a parent or a friend can support someone who has this uh, personality or this gift. Well, the way you support them is just be positive. Be positive with them. <laughs> Let them know that what they are is great, that they have talents, that they have gifts, and that they need to kind of grow into those gifts. You know, make them feel good about themselves. Make them feel positive. Make them feel that they do have a lot to contribute. They'll have a they'll be able to contribute in their own way. And because they have extra awareness that maybe they'll have an extra con you know, contribution to make mm. to life as well, but they'll have to find it. They'll have to wrestle it to the ground, tame it and take it on, you know, be authentic with it and live it, not be kind of curled up in the fetal position, afraid of being picked on because they're different. So it's a matter of growing up, letting go of the, of the ego that wants to be like everybody else that wants to be accepted. Just letting go of that ego and being who you are. Again, a positive attitude will solve that problem. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT events. Hope you liked this video. 
We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.